Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, as we uh, come to the beginning of this study that we have, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. I pray that we all would have ears to hear and hearts that are open to whatever you might have to teach us, Heavenly Father. Lord, may all that's said bring glory to your holy name and be acceptable in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. When studying history, it is useful to study it from a a certain point of view, uh, of one subject, if you will. At West Point, I studied world history from the standpoint of war and conflict. If you're in college to be an engineer, you may want to study history from the point of view of the history of structures and buildings and bridges. If you're in higher education to become a musician, you might study history from the point of view of music and instruments. If your expertise is to be in art, you may study history from the history of art and paintings. If you plan to be a fashion designer, you may study the history of fashion and clothing. Even chefs may study the history of preparing food. When studying Christianity, you can do it by looking at the history of its growth or by the revelation and the doctrine of God or even the the history of preaching. When reading about the history of the church, there is one common thread that runs throughout the ages from beginning to end. And that common thread is, guess what? Persecution. Persecution. Folks, that's the bad news. That's the bad news. I'm going to tell you, uh, today you're going to sit here and think, well, that's, that's a lot of bad news. Well, I'm sorry, but the good news doesn't start till next Sunday. All right? So, Gene, I apologize for that, okay? All right. You know, the church was born out of persecution of our Savior, who was falsely arrested, and he was beaten, and he was killed by crucifixion. But you know what he said in the Sermon of the Mount? Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And he also said later on, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he may become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they insult the members of his household? And in John chapter 15, beginning with verse 18, we read, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, and these are key words for later on when we get to the good news. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I'm going to say that again. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. And in John chapter 16, verse 2, Jesus said, They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Yes, and all, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The question you should be asking yourself right now is, do I desire to live godly in Christ Jesus? Well, you know what the result's going to be. And in that same epistle, chapter 1, verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. We know that our Lord's prophecy is true. But to what extent? Who does the persecuting and why? You know, by looking at history, I think we can understand what we can expect. Persecution of his followers began shortly after his ascension. Remember when we studied Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 3? As they were speaking to the people, this is right after Pentecost, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in prison until the next day, for it was already evening. We know that other then the persecution of Jesus, the persecution of the church as a whole, leading to death, began with whom? We studied in Acts. Who did it begin with? Stephen. That's right, Don. Stephen, a deacon, <clears throat> martyred for preaching Christ, the Messiah crucified. And his, uh, his sermon is recorded in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Then at the end of Acts chapter 7, verse 58, we read, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul approved of putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. On that very day, persecution broke out against the church, led by one Saul of Tarsus, which scattered the believers of Jerusalem throughout Judea and Samaria and other areas, takes you back to what Jesus said. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. The next obvious act of persecution recorded in Acts 
is James, the son of Zebedee. He was beheaded by King Agrippa. And it pleased the Jews so much that he also arrested Peter. Much of the rest of the book of Acts records the beatings and persecutions of Paul, the persecutor who became the persecuted. According to history, Paul was beheaded in Rome in A.D. 66, about the time Peter was crucified. The murderous deaths of the rest of the apostles is not recorded in Scripture. Historical narratives report them all being put to death for their faith by hanging, crucifixion, pierced, and other horrible ways, except for John, the apostle who was exiled to the island of Patmos for his faith. The persecution of the church did not end with Christ's closest disciples, his apostles. The church transitioned from being a supposed enemy of the Jews to an enemy of the state. Now, I'm departing now from what the Bible says to what history records. It is not truth. It is not without error. It is not always accurate. Yet it is as trustworthy as the rest of history of the world that man believes to be true. A lot of the information I got came from Fox's Book of Martyrs, from Christianity Through the Ages, and later on, as I want to read from a book entitled A Spectacle Under God. The persecutions that I'm going to mention included men, women, and children. The first Roman persecution of the church began in AD 67 under Nero. Besides Paul and Peter, during this period, we can add the names of Aristarchus and Trophimus, whom you might recognize. The second Roman persecution came under Domitian in AD 81, when John was exiled to Patmos, and we find the first governmental law against being a Christian has said that no Christian, once brought before the tribunal, should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion. It was during this persecution that Timothy was killed by the people for preaching against their idolatry. The third persecution was under Trajan and Adrian in AD 108. Ignatius was killed at this time. The fourth was under Marcus Aurelius Antonius in A.D. 162. Polycarp was martyred at this time, and it is reported that he said uh, the following words as he was uh, being killed. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The fifth persecution commencing with Severus was AD 192. During this persecution, which extended to Africa, Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyons, was beheaded and many bishops of Rome were killed. The sixth was under Maximus in AD 235. The seventh under Decius in AD 249, brought on partially because of the growth of the church. And that's interesting. During all these persecutions, the church is actually growing, and it was growing so much that it caused another persecution. 
The eighth was under Valerian in AD 257. There was an innumerable number of martyrs during this time, including Cypriot, the bishop of Carthage. The ninth began in AD 274 under Aurelian. At this time, there was a legion of soldiers consisting of all Christians, 6,666 men. They were called the Theban Legion. That tells you the spread of Christianity when it gets to this point and you have a whole legion of Christians. Now they were ordered to accompany the Emperor Maximin to Gaul to do what? To wipe out Christianity. Each member of the legion refused to take the oath to do it. Maximian ordered one out of ten soldiers to be put to death. And that's what happened. They still resisted and refused. He ordered another 10% to be put to death. At this time, they put together a remonstrance, which is a, a request to the emperor to not make this happen. The emperor had the rest of them killed by the sword. The 10th persecution was under Diocletian in AD 303. The emperor persecutions came to an end, praise the Lord, for about a thousand years with the first Christian Roman emperor named Constantine. The Edict of Milan in 313 declared tolerance for Christianity. The Edict of Thessalonica in 380 made Christianity the state religion. From this time on, persecutions to Orthodox Christianity occurred into the 11th century by pagans and unorthodox Christian heretics. It was a more of an individualistic type persecution and less of a state-led. However, more state-led persecutions began in the 11th century, and we find uh, the beginning of that probably more with the Danes in England than anyone else. So far, persecutions had kind of been confined to the pagan world, if you will. Now we come to persecutions under the guise of Christianity, which produced more horrible and terrible actions than ever seen by paganism. Not surprisingly, it was accomplished during the period of history termed the Dark Ages. And this leads us to the papal persecutions. Once again, when Jesus said, they will kill you thinking that they are doing God a service. Throughout this period of time, the lines were often blurred between papal and secular powers. The beginnings of the Reformation ideas with an emphasis only on the scriptures is what enhanced and brought forth these persecutions. We find the beginnings of them in the 12th century. The persecutions of the Catholics against the Protestants began full force with the persecution of the Waldenses in France. This brought into being an order of the Dominican friars, which you may have heard of, who became the principal inquisitors in the inquisitions in the world. Persecution of the Waldenses was followed by persecution of the Albigenses 
in France, something you may have heard of in history, the Bartholomew Day Massacre began in Paris, and that occurred in 1572. It was the perfect storm of the king and the pope and the local officials and people working together to wipe out the root of Protestantism in France. From the highest government officials to the lowest peasant, men, women, and children, persecutions and killings went on. The target was the Huguenots. I found this interesting because my brother has traced the lineage of of our family back to the Huguenots in France. As a matter of fact, it goes to, to, to Ireland because some of the Huguenots left France during this persecution and they went to Ireland, and that's where my family goes back to. But anyway, the target was the Huguenots. The forms of barbarian killings and torture could best be described as butchery. All of this was planned to take effect on the night of the wedding of the sister of the king of France. All right? She was Catholic, and she was being married to one prince of Navarre, the captain of prince of the Protestants, and his name was Coligny, and he was one of those slain. You see, this wedding was set up for the purpose of persecuting the Protestants. The massacres on St. Bartholomew's Day were painted in the Royal Salon of the Vatican of Rome with the following inscription. The Pope approves of Coligny's death. It is reported that there were over 100,000 killed during that time. In 1598, Henry IV in France signed the Edict of Nantes, giving rights to the Huguenots living in France. The Protestants, as time went on, helped Francis King Louis XIV win civil wars. In return, Louis, afraid of their military and political power, began a new persecution against them that continued until the French Revolution in 1789. That persecution began with expelling them from offices and economic and business privileges. Their children were taken to be educated by Catholics and made to embrace popery. Next, they were exiled out of the kingdom, their belongings were taken, and finally it was followed by murder and torture. The Inquisitions were a result of Pope Innocent III fearing the rise of Protestantism. It occurred in many countries, the most historic being the Spanish Inquisitions. It was church authorities with help from government and military conducting tribunals for heresy. Heresy was defined on all that is spoken or written against any of the articles or creeds or traditions of the Catholic Church. A defense was of little use since suspicion only is deemed sufficient cause of condemnation. Judgment was swift as was the punishment or the execution. And the greater a person's wealth, the greater the danger. 
the inquisitors would destroy life to gain their property. Under Emperor Frederick II, all accused who refused to repent should be burned, and those who repent imprisoned for life. Hundreds of thousands in France, the Netherlands, Italy, South America, Portugal, Spain were persecuted, tortured, and killed. There's not enough time to recount the persecutions that continued in Europe from the 12th through the 19th century in every country where the Catholic Church had influence. Even at this time, there were actually wars going on between Protestant towns and Catholic towns, between Protestant uh, areas and Catholic areas. The individual accounts and stories of what was done to inflict pain and death in the most horrible and suffering ways would bring us to tears. Men, women, children, mothers with children, pregnant women, all tortured and killed in the most degrading circumstances. Many, though, died with a testimony to faith in Christ and the eternal God, and I'll be recounting some of those as we go on. During this period, you will find the killing of many of the Reformation leaders like Tyndall, Calvin, Luther, Huss, and many others. Often the persecution would be based on who was king. For instance, in England, the reign of Bloody Mary sent many to glory. One period of persecution in Ireland cost 150,000 lives. During this time, we find persecution of the Quakers and other Protestants leading to the search for religious freedom on other continents. In the early 19th century, we find persecution now against missionaries in foreign lands. For example, the Judsons were caught up in the war of the British East India Company in Burma and were persecuted because of their faith. In the 20th century, Christian populations were persecuted. Sometimes they were persecuted to the point of genocide by various states, including the Ottoman Empire and its successor state, which committed the Hamidian massacres, the Armenian genocide, the Assyrian genocide, and the Greek genocide, and other atheist states, such as those as the former Eastern Bloc. The 20th century saw some global wars that resulted in the persecution of Christians to increase. Now, I found this interesting. World War I and World War II caused a shift in the protection of the Christian religion. What were the global results of World War II? Russian communism, which actually goes back to World War I, and their influence spread into the Western European states like Poland, Latvia, the Ukraine, and the Baltic states. Then you have the rise of communism in China that came with World War II. China has an authorized state Christian 
church. I put that in quotes. And unauthorized secret home churches. Both countries, Russia and China, have become antagonistic to Christianity and persecute the true church. I remember when I was in Russia, which included Ukraine at that time, back in 1973, and I went to a Christian church, and it was all people our age or older, no young people at all, because it was against the law to teach young people Christianity. Communism, socialism, what do they do? They ignore human sin. They ignore it, which always upsets their order unless they report to brutal regimentation, which communists have done everywhere. With communism, socialism, there is no place for God, the Bible, or absolute standards in their system. The world wars also saw a decrease in European-controlled countries, and that went to self-governance for those countries, often among Muslim countries or countries of other religions. By population, 20% of the world's population is under communist control. 28% of the world population is found in Muslim or other religious countries. That's 48% of the world population in countries that persecute Christians. We might be thinking the church has a greater chance to flourish in democratic countries. Unfortunately, those countries, since the, the great wars, those countries' governments have become increasingly secularized, have become more powerful against the rights of the individual. As we have observed in Europe and the U.S., the rise in governmental controls over the individual have often led with conflict with the Christian church. Now you add to this the secularization of society and culture. You know, many countries were established based on freedom of religion, based on the Judea Christian ethic and reason of law. In Russia... The government may say there is no God. But in our country and many others, the populace, the culture, the society itself is rejecting the Christian God. Instead of persecution coming from a government that is anti-Christian or a strong religious influence that is anti-Christian, it is now coming from a society that itself wants to change what was once a moral foundation to standards without God and wants to subjugate the church to circular beliefs. And folks, if you follow the news, you've seen that happen in our country and especially in Canada recently. Persecution now comes from socialist governments, anti-Christian religious systems, and a Romans 1 moral decline of society. There is no country where Christianity is guaranteed 
to be free from persecution. Persecution of Christians has continued to occur in the 21st century. Christianity is the largest world religion, and its adherents live across the globe. Approximately 10% of the world's Christians are members of minority groups, which live in non-Christian majority states. The contemporary persecution of Christians includes the genocide of Christians by the Islamic State and persecution by other terrorist groups, with official state persecution mostly occurring in countries which are located in Africa and Asia because they have state religions or because their governments and societies practice religious favoritism. Such favoritism is frequently accompanied by religious discrimination and religious persecution. According to the United States Commission on International Religious Freedoms 2020 report, Christians in Burma, China, Eritrea, India, Iran, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Vietnam are persecuted. These countries are labeled countries of particular concern by the United States Department of State because their government's engagement in or toleration of severe violations of religious freedom. The same report recommends that Afghanistan, Algeria, Azerbaijan, Bahrain, the Central African Republic, Cuba, Egypt, Indonesia, Iraq, Kazakhstan, Malaysia, Sudan, and Turkey constitute the U.S. State Department's special watch list of countries in which the government allows or engages in severe violations of religious freedom. I read recently where a two-year-old, along with his entire family, were sentenced to political life imprisonment after the North Korean officials found a Bible in their possession. The U.S. State Department's International Religious Freedom Report of 2022 found documenting this and the regime's crackdown on people having religious beliefs. The report provided estimated figures on religious persecution there, stating that approximately 70,000 Christians, as well as individuals from other faiths, are imprisoned in North Korea. On the Internet, I found a report by the BBC on August the 18th this year. More than 100 people have been arrested in a city in East Pakistan after thousands of Muslims burned churches and vandalized homes. Violence in Yarwala was sparked by claims that two Christian men had torn pages from a copy of the Koran. The historic Salvation Army Church was still smoldering on Thursday, one day after the riot. The two men accused of damaging the Koran, Islam's holy book, have been arrested and are being investigated for blasphemy, 
which is punishable by death in Pakistan. While some have been sentenced to death, it has never been carried out. However, a mere accusation of blasphemy can result in whispered riots, sometimes leading to lynchings and killings. A local official told BBC Urdu that authorities had received calls about protests and fires early on Wednesday morning after reports about the desecration of the Koran circulated in the city and on social media. Authorities said torn pages of the sacred text with blasphemous content allegedly scribbled on them in red marker ink were found near a Christian community. The report sparked outrage among the Muslim community, and the violence that ensued saw mobs attacking and looting private homes belonging to Christians. Police told the BBC that possessions belonging to Christians were pulled into the streets and set on fire. Yasir Badi, a 31-year-old Christian, was one of those forced to flee his home. They broke the windows, doors, and took out fridges, sofas, <laughs> chairs, and other household items to pile them up in front of the church to be burnt, he told the news agency. They also burnt and desecrated Bibles. They were ruthless. I also read a Fox report on August 22nd. For more than four years, Rassanen has been investigated by a rogue Finnish prosecutor's office for the, quote, war crime of agitation against a population group. Why? For criticizing her own church for sponsoring a gay parade, a gay pride parade, and because she wrote a pamphlet supporting a biblical view of marriage 20 years ago. The prosecution levied an additional charge against Johanna Pahola, a bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Mission Diocese of Finland, for merely hosting her pamphlet on his church's website. I'm going to remind you what Pastor Jeff said a couple of weeks ago. This country has seen so much light, and yet rejection grows. What can we learn from history? First of all, since the death of Christ, there has not been a single generation of Christians who have not felt the warnings of Christ about persecution come true. Not a single generation. Persecution can happen in an instant as a government can go from protecting Christianity to persecuting it in a short period of time. The persecutors can be government officials, other religion, your neighbor, or other so-called Christian churches. Persecution can come in the form of taking an individual's material possessions, employment, education, home, friends, family, health, safety, comfort, control, entertainment, and even their physical life. As Christians, we need to be prepared to respond to persecution in a biblical way. And also, persecution unveils answers to the following questions. Where is my heart? What is most important to me? 
What are my priorities? What is my worldview? Okay, folks, that's the bad news. That's the bad news. The good news, probably the best, best primer on living and dying under persecution is found in the apostles' letter to those persecuted under Roman emperors. And that would be the epistle, First Peter. And that's what we're going to be getting the good news from. I'd like to kind of close here by reading about an example of a persecuted Christian put to death having followed the admonitions of Peter. And his name is Christopher Love. Here's the letter he wrote from the Tower of London, August the 22nd, 1651, and he calls it the Day of My Glorification. It's a letter to his wife. He writes, My most gracious beloved, I am now going from a prison to a palace. I have finished my work. I am now to receive my wages. I am now going to heaven, where are two of my children. And leaving thee on earth were our three of my babes. Those two above need not my care, but the three below need thine. It comforts me to think two of my children are in the bosom of Abraham, and three of them will be in the arms and care of so tender a godly mother. I know thou art a woman of sorrowful spirit, yet be comforted. Though thy sorrow be great for thy husband's going out of the world, yet thy pains shall be the less in bringing thy child into the world. Thou shalt be a joyful mother, though thou beest a sad widow. God hath many mercies in store for these. The prayers of a dying husband for thee will not be lost. To my shame I speak it. I never prayed so much for thee at liberty as I have done in prison. I cannot write more, but I have a few practical counsels to leave with thee. Keep under a sound, orthodox, and soul-searching ministry. Bring up thy children the knowledge and admonition of the Lord. Pray in the family daily that thy dwelling may be in the number of families that call upon God. Labor for a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Pour not on the comforts thou wantest, but on the mercies thou hast. Look rather at God's end in afflicting, afflicting than at the measure and degree of thy affliction. Swallow up your will in the will of God. It is a better, bitter cup we are to drink, but it is the cup of our Father that is put in our hands. When Paul was to suffer at Jerusalem, the Christian said, the will of the Lord be done. Oh, say ye so when I go to Tower Hill, the will of the Lord be done. Rejoice in my joy. To mourn for me inordinately argues that you either envy or suspect my happiness. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Oh, let it be yours also. Dear wife, farewell. I call thee wife no more. I shall see thy face no more. Yet I am not much troubled, for now I am going to meet the bridegroom, 
the Lord Jesus, to whom I shall be eternally married. Refuse not to marry when God offers you a fair opportunity, but be sure you marry in the Lord, and one of good disposition, that he may not grieve you, but give you a comfortable livelihood in the world. Farewell, dear love, and again I say farewell. The Lord Jesus be with your spirit. The maker of heaven and earth be a husband to you. And the father of the Lord Jesus Christ be a father to your children. So prays your dying and most affectionate friend till death. Christopher Love was brought from the tower by the sheriffs of London to the scaffold on Tower Hill about 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, August 22nd, 1651. He left his chamber at the tower carrying his Bible in one hand. The ministers who accompanied him were Simeon Ash, Edmund Colomy, and Thomas Manton. Mary Love wrote, that's his wife, when he came through the gates of the tower, many thousands of spectators and friends made the hill ring with their bitter ripping and lamentations, pressing upon him that they might but touch him and see his face, which they should see no more. There was one among the crowd who had said to his neighbor earlier in the day, let us go and see what a spot love's blood will make on Tower Hill. But when he saw him and heard him speak and pray, he cried out and lamented that he had thirsted for his blood and was thought with some others to have been converted by this martyr's death. When he arrived on the scaffold, Sheriff Teachburn showed him the warrant and he told him that he was doing what he was ordered to do and taking no pleasure in it. It was his duty. Love said, I believe it, sir. The man said, I have done my duty for you. The Lord bless you, was Love's reply. And then he was allowed to give a sermon, if you will, before his prayer. Part of it went on like this. I am made this day a spectacle unto God, angels and men, and among men I am made a grief to the godly, a laughing stock to the wicked, and a gazing stock to all. Yet blessed be my God, not a terror to myself. Although there is but little between me and death, yet this bears up my heart, there is little between me and heaven. It comforted Dr. Taylor, the martyr, when he was going to execution, that there were but two styles between him and his father's house. There is a lesser way between me and my father's house, but two steps between me and glory. It is but lying down upon the block, and I shall ascend upon a throne. I am this day sailing towards the ocean of eternity, through a rough passage to my haven of rest, through a red sea to the promised land. I think I hear God say to me, as he did to Moses, go up to Mount Nebo and die there. So to me, go up to Tower Hill and die there. To this I briefly say that it is an old guise of the devil to impute the cause of God's people suffering to be contrivements against the state, when in truth it is their religion and conscience they are being persecuted for.
he gave a long sermon, which I'm going to skip a lot there. Okay? All right. He kind of ends it like this. Here I come to that which you call an untimely end and a shameful death. But, blessed be God, it is my glory and it is my comfort. I shall justify God. He is righteous because I have sinned. He is righteous though he cuts me off in the midst of my days and in the midst of my ministry. My blood shall not be spilt for naught. I may do more good by my death than by my life and glorify God more in dying upon a scaffold than if I had died of a disease upon my bed. I bless my God. I have not least trouble upon my spirit, but I do with as much quietness of mind lie down, I hope I shall, upon the block as if I were going to lie down upon my bed or take my rest. Now, beloved, I shall not only justify God as I do without a compliment, for he would be very just if my prison had been hell and the scaffold the bottomless pit. I have deserved both, so that I do not only justify God, but desire this day to magnify God, to magnify the riches of his, of his glorious grace, that which a one as I born in an obscure country in Wales, of obscure parents, that God should look upon me and single me out from amongst all my kindred to be an object of his everlasting love. Further, I bless my God that though men have judged me to be cast out of the world, yet God has not cast me out of the hearts and prayers of his people. I would rather be cast out of the world than cast out of the hearts of godly men. And now I am to commend my soul to God and to receive my fatal blow. I am comforted in this. Though men kill me, they cannot damn me. And though they thrust me out of the world, yet they cannot shut me out of heaven. I am going to my long home, and you are going to your short homes. But I will tell you, I shall be at home before you. I shall be at my father's house before you will be at your own houses. I am now going to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable company of angels, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to God, the judge of all, in whose presence there is fullness of joy, and at whose right hand are pleasures evermore. Then turning to the sheriff, he said, May I pray? <laughs> then he gives this great big long prayer in front of all the people. After he had prayed, he turned to Sheriff Titchburn and said to him, Sir, I thank you for your kindness, and you have expressed a great deal of kindness to me. Well, I go from a block to the bosom of my Savior. Then he called for the executioner. When the executioner came forward, he said, Art thou the officer? Yes, said the executioner. At that point, Mr. Love is said to have tipped the executioner three pence wrapped in a piece of white paper. This was a common practice to encourage the man to make sure that the beheading was completed with just one blow. Many executions were not completed with a single swipe of the axe, which caused enormous anxiety and anguish to the crowd and the individual. Love then lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, O blessed Jesus, that hath kept me from the hurt of death and the fear of death, O blessed be God, blessed be God. Then taking his leave of the ministers and his other friends, he said, The Lord be with you all. Then he knelt down and prayed a little while privately. And rising up, he said, 
Blessed be God, I am full of joy and peace in believing. I lie down with a world of comfort as if I lie down in my own bed. My bed is but a short sleep, and this death is a long sleep, while I shall rest in Abraham's bosom and in the embraces of the Lord. When he was preparing to lay his head down upon the block, Mr. Ash said to him, Dear brother, how dost thou find that heart? Love replied, I bless God, sir. I am as full of joy and comfort as ever my heart can hold. The last words he was heard to speak were these, Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Love then produced a red scarf, which he directed to be disposed upon the block. He then knelt down and rested his head on the scarf. When he stretched forth his hands, the executioner severed his head from his body at one blow. And so it was that on August 22, 1651, Reverend Christopher Love, aged 33, ministered of the gospel, husband to Mary and father of two, with another on the way, was executed. How can someone do that? Well, we're going to find out. I believe Christopher Love was a really, really good student of the epistle, the first letter of Peter. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you didn't have to tell us a whole lot of bad news. Jesus warned us, Heavenly Father, in the Gospels, and Paul reiterated it. But Lord, we just need to look at history to find out because you chose us out of the world, Lord, the world hates us. And persecution has been through every single generation, Heavenly Father, children of yours. But God, the good news is you've told us not only that it's going to come, but how do we get through it? How do we keep our faith in the midst of such times? Lord God, I look forward to you teaching us in the epistle of First Peter. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, a minute or two. Questions, comments from anyone? Yes, Jean. What is the Christian's duty in the face of evil to include prostitution? Ah, to great question. accept it or just to let it go? Because everything that I've been taught or read is to ignore evil is evil itself. Okay. Let's see what Peter has to say about in his epistle. Because I think he's going to tell us what should be our response when persecution comes. And how should we be prepared when persecution comes? That's a good question. Anything else? Anybody else? It says rejoice. Yes, rejoice. When Christ also says Peter to buy a sword, right? Okay. We're going to... Let's, let's, let's not jump ahead of me and, and First Peter, Okay. <laughs> All right, let's see. Let's give Peter a chance at, at answering your question. Anything else? Okay, dismissed. <laughs>